Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Welcome to episode four, Being with Others. Who is Dasein? Who is the human being? First thing to say is that a couple of episodes back, when I introduced this character, Dasein, the human being, um, we saw that Dasein was a being defined by a who and not by a what. So we, Dasein, are the kind of beings defined by a who. Namely, we're not like tables and chairs, which can be defined in terms of a, an essence, a, a whatness. Rather, we're beings defined by a who, who can ask themselves the question, who am I? So who is Dasein? That's going to be the question that Heidegger addresses in this very, very important chapter, chapter four of uh, Division One, Being in Time. So Dasein is being in the world, as I've repeatedly said in these shows. In chapter three, we saw what in the world meant for Dasein. The world is not most closely and mostly proximally and for the most part, zunächst and zumais, this expression that Heidegger uses, most closely and mostly. The world is not experienced as something objectively and constantly present at hand. Um, forehand and objectively present at hand over against a thinking subject, a world of extended things over against a thinking thing. That picture is uh, mistaken. That Cartesian picture is mistaken, Heidegger thinks. The world is that referential totality Heidegger calls it, that whole of stuff which is connected together. The different things in the world which are related to each other and which make up a whole and which hang together. Referential totality of the handy, of the ready to hand, with which Dasein is involved and which has significance for Dasein, which is meaningful. So Dasein, is its world, and the world is for the sake of Dasein. Think back to that poem I cited a couple of episodes back from Wallace Stevens. There never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang. So Dasein is with its world. It is fascinated, benumbed, this interesting word benommen in German, which also can mean almost being slightly drunk or lost in the world, kind of um, intoxicated by the world. We're fascinated by it, the average everyday world. Now, in this being in the world, others are also discovered. Heidegger says in, this is 160 of the translation, he says, um, Dasein is essentially for the sake of others. Dasein is essentially for the sake of others. Then he makes this other remark, which is kind of fascinating. Dasein is in the way of being with. So the world is for the sake of Dasein. There never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. And Dasein is for the sake of others. But most importantly, Dasein is with others. Dasein indeed is the with. The way Heidegger would put this in, in German is that Dasein is Mitsein. And that's a simple thought to say, a difficult thought to, to really kind of live, that we are with, we are fundamentally with others, with the world and with others. But try and keep that um, uppermost in your minds. We are the with. And this brings us to the question of this chapter. Who is Dasein? 
or more specifically, um, because for Heidegger, the question is the question of access. What is our access to um, Dasein? Well, our access to it is average, everyday life. So then the question is, who is Dasein in this mode of average, everyday life? He writes on page uh, 165, towards the end of the chapter, there's this extraordinary passage where he says, everyone is the other and no one is himself. Everyone is the other and no one is himself. The they, and we'll come back to that term, the they which supplies the answer to the question of the who of everyday Zarzain is the nobody to whom every Dasein has already surrendered itself in being among one another. So the question of who Dasein is in average everydayness is gonna be answered by saying that the who of everyday Dasein is they, is them. And we're gonna lay that thought out a bit later in this episode. But Dasein is nobody in the sense of nobody in particular. Everyone is the other, and no one is himself. And um, as I like poems, I thought I would read you another little poem. And this poem is by Emily Dickinson, and it's called Life. This is the first part of life. I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, don't tell. They banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. Don't know where the frog came from there, but the idea of I'm nobody is the thought that Heidegger's beginning, beginning with. So in its everyday mode, the mode in which it encounters the world first and foremost, proximally and for the most part, as handy, Dasein is not itself, it is the other, it is they. Dasein is nobody, in particular. And we're gonna try and get to the bottom of this peculiar state of affairs in this uh, episode. But Dasein is with others. That's the thought to, to hang on to. So in the same way that uh, we are with the world, or we're with the stuff in the world, the, the, the cup that I have on the, the desk here, the microphone, the desk, I'm also with others. Others are lit up in that world. And another way of putting this, which would be a way uh, that Heidegger, a word that Heidegger doesn't use, but if it makes you feel better because it's familiar, then you can uh, maybe it'll make some sense, is to say that Dasein's being is social being. What Heidegger's doing in being in time is a kind of social ontology. Heidegger doesn't like the word social because it's um, a term taken over from the tradition without sufficient examination. Or to use another expression, we could say that the human being, Dasein, is a kind of network being. We are a being who's in a network of relations to things, a relationship to persons, and we are the practices in networks. Namely that our identity is had with others and not apart from them. This uh, phrase, everyone is the other and no one is himself, also puts us in mind of another uh, famous expression, a famous uh, quotation from the French poet uh, Arthur Rimbaud. Rimbaud, not the, um, not the boxer from Philadelphia, but the French poet that ended up as a kind of a commercial trader in Africa, who wrote The Illuminations. Um, in a letter from 1871, Rimbaud says, Je est un autre, I is another. And he continues that quote by saying, I is another, I owe myself to society. It's false to say, I think, one should rather say, they think me, on me pense, he says in French, on me pense. We can think about this in relationship to another category taken from the uh, sociologist uh, Durkheim, where he talks about anomie, anonymity. 
as the condition of social life. And Heidegger's trying to think about uh, that kind of way of being, that our who is Dasein in its average everydayness, Dasein is anonymous, is one of a crowd. Now, the radicality of this opening move in chapter four is that Heidegger does not begin his analysis of the who of Dasein by first positing an individual human being as given and then go on to construct that human being's relation to others and the surrounding world. No, for Heidegger, Dasein begins as being with. Therefore, the, um, the standard way in which philosophers will talk about the relationship to others as, um, you know, I am a subject, and then the question becomes, how can my subjectivity be related to other subjectivities? The problem of intersubjectivity in philosophy is entirely avoided by Heidegger. I is with. Um, and this first move does nothing less than problematize the Cartesian starting point for philosophy. The Cartesian starting point in Descartes' meditations is that the, um, there is an I that thinks, and this I that thinks is indubitable, uh, which cannot be doubted. And um, as, I, as, as Descartes says in the meditations, I am, I exist, that's where we begin from. And then from that I am, I exist, we raise the question of what's the relationship between that self and the world of objects standing over against that subject. The point is that for Heidegger, the self of everydayness is not a Cartesian subject defined in terms of the constant present at handness of substance, of extended substance, but rather we're beings who are constitutively together with others who share their space with others. If we think about that, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, if I am with, then where do I end? Where does the other really begin? Is it so obvious? We're just used to thinking of, thinking of ourselves as individual subjects, as distinct identities moving in a world of other individual atoms. Heidegger's thought is rather that we're always already with. Now, just to glimpse down the, the road a little bit, I want to open up the vista for a, a couple of minutes, and then we'll go into the text more closely and try and pull out the key concepts. Heidegger begins his analysis of the, of the, of the question of who is Dasein by um, by putting into question the Cartesian starting point for philosophy, as I said. Then the question is, well, does the self go away in Heidegger's analysis? Is there, is there no self? That's not the case. As we'll see when we move through these episodes, uh, the self emerges in being and time, but it emerges later. And uh, he'll say right at the end of um, chapter four um, that authentic selfhood, authentic being a self, is a modification of the inauthentic they-self. What does that mean? It means that the, the who of Dasein, who Dasein is, in average everydayness, is that we are they, we are held together with others. I can modify that inauthenticity and become an authentic self. But what is fundamental for Heidegger is being with. The question then of how the self takes shape in being in time um, is something, is a story that we're going to tell in these, these episodes because there is a self and it emerges and it emerges in a series of moments I just want to mention them now, and then we can um, analyze them at our leisure. The first way in which the self emerges in being in time, this is a bit later on in paragraph 40, 
is through the experience of anxiety. In anxiety, I, I pull myself out of the average everyday world and I'm revealed to myself as an individuated, singular, isolated being. And I think about this in, um, uh, with maritime metaphors because I like maritime metaphors. To be uh, a self in the world for Heidegger is to be with them. It's like being immersed in, uh, in the sea. Um, and then what happens in anxiety, it's as if the tide goes out uh, on the seashore and then reveals a self that's there like a, like a rock on the beach. The self is precipitated from out of the, the salty water of the, the they. Uh, so anxiety is the first moment. The second moment where the self begins to take shape is in being towards death. The relationship to death is a relationship to my death and to a death that is coming to me. Um, and what Heidegger's got in mind there is that the experience of mortality, of being towards death, individuates Dasein. The death that appears is the death that's coming to me, is my death, and that death shapes me. The third moment, anxiety, death, it's very cheerful this, isn't it? Anxiety, death, the third moment is conscience. The call of conscience. It's conscience calling to me and rendering me powerless. It's a little like that moment in um, Kafka's trial when Joseph K. Is in, I think he's in a cathedral or something, and he hears the word guilty being called out in the church. Um, that's what conscience is like. Conscience picks you out in the way Joseph K. is picked out as an individual guilty self. So the um, anxiety, being towards death, conscience, and then when I achieve those three moments, I become what Heidegger says, uh, I become resolute. I become resolute Dasein. I kind of decided openness in the face of, face of death, and I'm free to assume my fate as an individual. And then there's another moment, we're gonna to get to this in a decisive paragraph towards the end of Being in Time, where the connection can be made between Heidegger's existential analytic of individual Dasein and um, the community. Um, and this is perhaps the most political moment in Being in Time, a very questionable political moment. But the fourth way in which I can uh, shape my, myself is that I can become a self, an authentic self as an individual with others within what Heidegger calls the destiny of the community. And if I can achieve that, then I can achieve a kind of constancy, a theme which comes back in the later parts of Being in Time is an idea of the constancy of the self, a constancy of the self that is not, um, that is not a kind of Archimedean point in the way it was for Descartes, but a constancy which is achieved existentially through the experience of anxiety, being towards death, conscience, and being with others. So the self isn't gonna disappear in Heidegger's analysis, it just doesn't begin with it. And the self forms a kind of inner limit within being in time, which is continually kind of crossed between the dissolution of the self, um, the critique of the standard, philosophy of the subject and the attempt to restore, to build a new conception of the self, what we might call a non-metaphysical idea of the self. But the self returns, but it returns as something radically finite, as defined by time, defined by history. The self is nothing substantial, but is a temporal, historical, movement, a temporalized self that is thrown into a past and which can throw off that past in a movement of free projection. 
Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to get to that uh, in later episodes. What I'd like to do now is just take you through a few moments in this uh, chapter four, being with others, and uh, make a couple of points where I can sort of lay out some of the, the key concepts that Heidegger introduces here. So in chapter 25, he um, begins by problematizing the Cartesian starting point for philosophy. He claims that to conceive of the self as something present at hand, as something, um, you know, something um, that we become theoretically aware of, is to see it as a substance or a subject. And this is the mistake of Descartes in the first place, but it's also the mistake of Kant, and it's also the mistake of Heidegger's teacher, Husserl, with his talk of the transcendental ego. So we cannot begin the question of who Dasein is by assuming that the I is self-evident that the I is, as Heidegger will put it, ontically obvious. The self is not ontically obvious, neither is it ontologically obvious. We have to ask ourselves the question of who Dasein is in a more, a more radical and thoroughgoing way. And we have to do this by putting aside the seeming self-evidence of the tradition and to begin to interpret Dasein existentially. Because there is no uh, extended substance. There is no, I'm gonna correct that phrase actually. Must put aside the seeming self-evidence of tradition and begin to interpret Dasein existentially. For the, the substance of Dasein is existence, as Heidegger has said, already a number of times in this book. So that's kind of setting the, uh, clearing the ground. And then um, in paragraph 26, he writes a fascinating passage where he talks about the relationship between ready to hand things, handy things that we find in the world and the relation of those things to other Daseins to other persons. And um, he says the following, I'll read you a little bit. And notice what he's, how he puts this. He says, this is on page 153 of Being in Time. In our description of that environment which is closest to us, the work world of the craftsman, for example. Note the example though, he talks about the work world of the craftsman as kind of a self-evident example of uh, an environment. The outcome was that along with the equipment to be found when one is at work, those others for whom the work is destined are encountered too. Right? So we're in the workshop of the world for Heidegger. And in the workshop, there aren't just tools, hammers and nails lying around. There are also other workers. And uh, I encounter them too in encountering things. He goes on to say, um, in the uh, relationship to things, people also show up. He says, when, for example, we walk along the edge of a field, we walk along the edge of a field. It's a very Heideggerian example. But outside it, the field shows itself as belonging to such and such a person and decently kept up by him. The book we have used was bought at so-and-so's shop and given by such-and-such such a person, and so forth. The boat anchored at the shore is assigned in its being in itself, blah, 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 blah. So in those examples, uh, walking by the edge of a field, um, in walking by the edge of a field, even when there's no farmer in the field plowing or whatever it's that farmers do, the um, the others, the, the, the farmer as other in that sense, shows, shows up. Um, in um, the book that we've used, we bought that book at a certain bookstore. Uh, and that bookstore is also a bookstore which is run by others. 
the boat anchored at the shore is assigned blah blah blah. In the boat we see someone, a boatman, who's, uh, who has that boat. So others show up in our relationship to, to things. And in freeing up uh, things in the world, we're also freeing up a relationship to others. So this is where Heidegger kind of begins with the analysis of being with Mitzayn. Um, so we are, as I said before, with. We are uh, fundamentally being with and being with other Daseins, other human beings. And we're with other Daseins even when no Dasein is there, Heidegger says. There's this strange remark where he talks about being alone. He says, being alone is a deficient mode of being with. So we can be alone, I can be in solitude, but the others which constitute that world are still, are still there, kind of in the background. Uh, he goes on to say, I can be alone in the presence of others and with others in their absence. So being alone is only possible because Dasein, the human being, is essentially being with. Then a couple of little terminological moves I just want to mention because they're, they're important is Heidegger loved to build a kind of linguistic um, architecture in his work. So for him, um, for, for Heidegger, the being of Dasein is care. We will get to that a little bit later on. We'll begin to get to that in the next episode and the episode after that, it will become crystal clear. The being of Dasein is care. And that word in German is Zorge. And then the relationship to um, things in the world is called concern, besorgen. You hear the, the, um, you hear the, the, the homophony between Zorge and besorgen. And our relationship to persons is described by Heidegger as Hürsorge, Hürsorge, which is translated as solicitude, which can be thought of as, as kind of caring for. So this idea of solicitude is what describes our relationship to the others. We care for the other and we care for the other's welfare because we are essentially the kind of beings who are with others. So the being of Dasein's uh, experience with others is caring for solicitude. This has had uh, lots of um, influence in all sorts of ways of thinking about care, um, for example, in relationship to um, nursing philosophy and uh, um, those areas of, um, you know, healthcare which are critical of the kind of domination of a Cartesian worldview that is meant to be found in, say, doctors, uh, doctors um, or surgeons see, see the body as a kind of Cartesian machine. Uh, the point is to see um, the human being in terms of caring for the human being as another human being. Um, and this is something which um, Heidegger can be said to inform. So, solicitude, caring for. There are two extreme modes of solicitude for Heidegger. There is what he calls leaping in and dominating the other. This is what he calls einspringen, leaping in, springing in. And the most extreme version of this would be maybe a kind of sadism where I control the other. I care for the other so much I'm controlling them. Uh, but we could also think about all kinds of dependency where I put the other um, in a situation of dependency, a kind of um, enslavement of the other almost. And the other extreme mode of solicitude is what Heidegger calls to leap ahead of the other. In German he says, vorausspringen, it's a rather nice uh, term, to leap ahead of the other. I leap ahead of the other not in order to care, to take care away from him, but in order to give it back to him authentically. And leaping ahead of the other enables the other to become transparent to himself 
and becomes and to become free. So these are the two modes of uh, solicitude. On the one hand, I can have a relationship to the other which dominates the other, which takes their freedom away from them. On the other hand, I can have a relationship to the other which frees the other person up. And that freeing of the other person up is, in a sense, the recommended mode by Heidegger. And he says, everyday being with one another maintains itself between these two extremes of domination and liberation. And as always, in, again, in Heidegger's you know, rather particular linguistic terminological architecture, so um, every mode of uh, care, in this case solicitude, um, Fürsorge, has a mode of sight, is a way of uh, looking at things. So we saw in um, episode uh, two and three that the way in which we relate to the world is as concern, which has a kind of sight which Heidegger calls circumspection, umsicht. The kind of sight that belongs to solicitude is what Heidegger calls considerateness and forbearance. Uh, the German there is Rücksicht und Nachsicht, uh, considerateness and forbearance. And the, uh, the thought here is that considerateness and forbearance can flip over into their deficient modes of inconsiderateness and intolerance, but quietly Heidegger is making a certain moral case for uh, a form of solicitude, caring for the other, which would enable the other to become free and where I would have a considerate and tolerant relationship to the other. Now, another thing to point out here, this is kind of a question which um, uh, we'll come back to in later episodes, but let me just uh, state it here in a kind of thumbnail way. On page 161, Heidegger says, understanding of being already implies the understanding of others. Understanding of being already implies understanding of others. For Heidegger, it is um, assumed that our relationship to the other, insofar as we are with the other, our relationship is a relationship of understanding. So what gets the whole mechanism of being in time up and running is that I have a vague and average understanding of being. And that vague and average understanding of being, which is, um, uh, he talks about in the introduction to being in time, can be made explicit, can be made um, philosophical in um, the existential analytic of Dasein. But that understanding of being implies an understanding of others. So Heidegger's presumption when he's talking about the relationship to others is that the relationship to others is a relationship of understanding, which sounds fine, maybe, sounds cool, maybe. The question that that raises is, kind of, is one's relationship to others always a relationship of understanding, a relationship of comprehension? Or are there perhaps moments when we experience the other as separate, as someone we don't understand, as someone who is distant from us, someone who we, um, we don't understand, we don't know, and perhaps who we have to respect for that reason. Now, I mentioned, uh, or I put the thought in that way because um, I've got somebody in mind, um, a philosopher in mind who is um, heavily influenced by Heidegger but becomes heavily critical of his work, and that's the, um, the work of Emmanuel Levinas, a uh, French-Lithuanian philosopher, uh, who I've done a lot of work on over the years. And he writes an essay in 1951, which is called, Is Ontology Fundamental? And the answer to that question is, is it's, it's not. He's got a critique of Heidegger, which we don't need to go into. It will come out um, a little bit as we move through these episodes. 
But the point that Levinas wants to make is that our relationship to the other is not simply a relationship of understanding where I am the same as them. There is something surprising. There is something challenging about the other which cannot be reduced to my framework of understanding. Um, well, let's put that to one side for a second. And now we're gonna move on to the really kind of fascinating bit of chapter four, which is the, the last paragraph, paragraph 27, which is called Everyday Being Oneself and the They. Let's try and get clear on this weird idea of the they. So who is Dasein in average everydayness? Heidegger's answer is that in average everydayness, I am they. Now, the term that he uses in German is das Mann. Das Mann is third person impersonal pronoun, um, which is harder to uh, find in English, the way we might say one says or one does. Uh, not he or she, one does. And um, the they is the one, is a kind of neutrality. And this is going to be a, uh, an important thought for Heidegger. What's he up to in doing this? What's on his mind? Well, he's giving an account of our relationship to, to others in average, everyday life. Now, uh, one way of thinking about what Heidegger's doing, I'm not saying this is right, but it might be interesting. There's a philosopher called Peter Sloterdijk, a German philosopher with a Dutch name, who writes a book, uh, I think it's one of his early books, called The Critique of Cynical Reason. And in this book, The Critique of Cynical Reason, there's a discussion of the they, um, it's very um, witty and perspicuous and sociologically interesting. And Sloterdijk claims that the they is an encoded social psychology of modernity. What he means by that is that what Heidegger is describing in this discussion of the they is the social experience of um, Germany between the First and Second World Wars, the experience of Weimar Germany, the experiment with democracy after the First World War that uh, led to eventually the rise of National Socialism in the early 30s. So it's tempting when you're reading these pages to see it as a kind of um, mirror of what's happening socially and historically in the Germany of Heidegger's days. But um, that's not the way Heidegger thinks about it. For Heidegger, the they is an existential, and it describes the condition for any possible social formation. So, now, the question that's raised by the analysis of the they is whether this is necessarily a negative evaluation of society, in quotation marks, a negative evaluation of our life with others. Heidegger insists that it isn't. Right? So regardless of what Sloterdijk would say or other philosophers might say about what Heidegger's up to here, Heidegger insists that talking about the they self is not negative. And perhaps one should take him at his word. We assume that Heidegger hates the they, them. But what if we divest ourselves of that prejudice and consider inauthentic, average, everyday life as a positive mode of human being in the world? And that's the way I would choose to think about it. That inauthenticity isn't necessarily bad. Heidegger says he's not making a moral valuation here inauthentic life is life with others, where we are related to others um, and dependent upon them. And that might not be altogether 
a bad thing. But let's go more closely to what Heidegger says in the, in the text. He says, um, and I'm on the, uh, around page 164 to 166, 67, 68, this, this bundle of pages at the end of chapter four. He says, in our relationship to others, there's a constant concern as to how one differs from others, which is, uh, which is troubling, he says. One is distanced from others. Being with another, there is a kind of what he calls a distanciality, a taking of distance. So I am them would seem to be Heidegger's thought, but in a way I keep my distance from them. I think about this, say, in relationship to using the subway. So when I'm using the subway, like when I use the subway to come to the studio to record this episode, I am them. I'm using the, um, the R train to get from Brooklyn to um, Canal Street, but I keep my distance from them. I don't collapse myself into them. So. That's the first thought. And um, it's uh, this idea of distance that he begins with. And he then begins to um, give some examples of life with the they self. Examples which have become kind of quite famous. He says, and I'm going to read a little bit um, from page 164. Um, you can see why. The subways on my mind. He says, in utilizing public means of transport and in making use of information services such as the newspaper, every other is like the next. Right? In using a bus or a subway, I am like the next person. In reading the newspaper, we're reading the same newspaper. Our difference dissolves at that point. And he goes on to say, this being with one another dissolves one's own Dasein. This being with one another dissolves one, one's own Dasein completely into the kind of being of the others. In this inconspicuousness and unascertainability, the real dictatorship of the they is unfolded. Strong word, dictatorship. Um, we take pleasure and enjoy ourselves as they take pleasure. We read, see, and judge about literature and art as they see and judge. Likewise, we shrink back from the great mass as they shrink back. We find shocking what they find shocking. This is the condition of averageness. Every Dasein is like the next the dictatorship of the they. Now, in the 1920s, the question of dictatorship was very much in the air. Um, but let's just, uh, let's just, so it's hard to not interpret that reference to the dictatorship of the, of the they negatively. But Heidegger says this isn't a negative evaluation. But in using public transport, in reading the newspaper, uh, in finding um, shocking what they find shocking, in enjoying what they enjoy, we all become one, one mass. He goes on to say, and I find this uh, a fascinating um, quotation. He goes on to say, overnight, everything that is primordial gets glossed over as something that has long been well known. Everything gained by a struggle becomes just something to be manipulated. Every secret loses its force. The care of averageness reveals in turn an essential tendency of Dasein, which we call the leveling down of all possibilities of being. So I find that, uh, phrase, every secret loses its force, particularly fascinating. Everything gained by struggle, everything gained with difficulty becomes leveled down in our life with 
them. So what characterizes the they-self is distanciality, averageness, and leveling down. And this is what makes up what Heidegger calls publicness or public life, öffentlichkeit. The they is always right and always already knows everything already. Everything is familiar and accessible. And if it's not familiar and accessible, it instantly becomes familiar and accessible. We can think about this, Heidegger's thinking about newspapers or public transport, but obviously we could think about this in relationship to, say, social media. There's a kind of way in which what social media does for us is that it makes everything familiar. Every secret loses its force. Um, everything which is important gets turned into an update, gets turned into something which we always already know about and the whole thing kind of circulates around. So publicness on this view is a leveling down. So I think, for example, you know, the, there's a, an interesting work of art, uh, a movie which you think is, uh, is an important movie which you've not seen. Um, but before you've seen that movie, you maybe read the Wikipedia entry on that movie, you read the reviews on that movie, you look at the Rotten Tomatoes, um, entries on that movie, um, and you know, you know it already. We pull it in close. It's as if in our social lives we're terrified by the prospect of something that would surprise us, that would, um, that would alarm us, that would challenge us, that would require struggle. We level down. We make things average, and that's our public life. So this is... Um, you know, why Sloterdijk says that maybe what Heidegger's describing in our life with them, the they-self, is democratic life. Democratic life where uh, everything is decided by public opinion and where nobody actually takes a decision. Nobody exercises a sovereign act. No, there is no answerability. There's no responsibility in our life with them, Heidegger says. So hopefully by now, and we're coming to the, the end, um, hopefully by now it's becoming clear why Heidegger says uh, everyone is the other and no one is himself. The they-self, uh, which is the answer to the question of who Dasein is, is the nobody, the nobody. Um, and um, that's because in our inauthentic life with others, we level down, we make things average, we make things familiar, we make things accessible. And this leads us into the dictatorship of the they. So then the question is, uh, and again, it's, it's hard not to think that Heidegger, what Heidegger's describing in our life with them is understood negatively, but he insists that it's not. Let's stay with that, and let's uh, move to the, the final thought in this chapter. His philosophical claim, his um, fundamental ontological claim in chapter 4, is that the they, Dasman, the they, is an existential. It is a primordial phenomenon that belongs to Dasein's positive constitution. Um, and although, he says, the extent of the dominion of the they might change in the course of history, interesting thought, so maybe this isn't once and for all time. Maybe it can change in history, but the structure of being with as being with them, the they-self, is a primordial phenomenon. How does one get from that to authenticity? How does one get from uh, the dictatorship of the they to authenticity? Now, 
I want to go back to a term which um, we've already seen in an earlier episode, where um, Heidegger will talk about Dasein as being dispersed amongst the world, dispersed out there, scattered in, in its being in the world. That dispersal is also a social dispersal. My being is dispersed amongst those other Daseins which I share the subway with, read the newspaper with, uh, follow uh, updates on whichever social media site I'm using. Now, to get from that dispersal to authenticity requires a modification in our understanding, a modification. Um, and that modification is going to happen through a series of um, operations, a series of steps, which we're going to uh, analyze in future episodes, which I've already mentioned. Anxiety, being towards death, conscience, and the rest. The, um, the, uh, the point that's important here is that for Heidegger, inauthentic, average, everyday being with others, the they-self, is what is existentially primordial. And authenticity, he says, does not rest upon an exceptional condition of the subject, a condition which has been detached from the they. He says it's an existential modification of the they. That's how the chapter finishes. So the way we become authentic for Heidegger is by modifying the way in which we understand our they-self, modifying it and taking it into our own possession. Right? Authenticity for Heidegger means something like coming into one's own freely. And that's what Heidegger's imagining at the end of this chapter. Now, that's kind of all I want to say today. Um, but let me just say a word about what we're going to do next. We now go into chapter five of Being in Time. Um, we've already covered a lot of ground. But chapter five, which is mysteriously called Being in as Such, in this chapter, Heidegger lays out the key concepts with which he's going to um, establish the rhythm of um, the existential analytic. What we've done so far in these episodes is lay out a series of concepts, the relationship to the world, concern, the relationship to others, solicitude, concepts which in a way appear rather static and fixed. Heidegger's thought is that being is time. Time is movement. We are movement. What is the, the rhythm of that movement? How do, we, um, how do we learn the music of that movement? And that requires a series of concepts which we're going to introduce next time. And uh, I'll see you then. So thank you very much.